So our first question is, what is your understanding of restraining evil? I understand restraining the pedophile from hurting children. On a larger scale, how is evil restrained from hurting, killing others, i.e. Nazi Germany targeting Jews, Pol Pot targeting intellectuals, and or currently Hamas brutality killing innocent Israelis? So my understanding of the restraining evil on a national society is not uh, ever in the hands of Christians. This is what Paul talks about in Romans. These are the, these are the governmental powers that are not that are not of God's kingdom. These are the kingdoms of the world working against kingdoms of the world. And when we get caught up into that, we miss it. If you want to if you want to see how God would do it, then look at the story of Hezekiah. Uh, he was the king of Jerusalem, and when the armies came, he sent out the singers and they sang praise to God and the holiness and an angel of the Lord came and protected them. Or in Elisha, when the angel armies came and circled around the, the invading armies and, uh, and he led them in and became friends. So the Christian um, doesn't seek to use the power of the state to do this. These are state powers working with state powers. Um, we will use on individual levels because we work and have power on an individual level uh, to restrain individuals from doing harm to other individuals, whether that's a psychotic patient that is wanting to gouge out their own eyes and we restrain them while we treat them. But the purpose of the restraint uh, on an individual level is for the purpose of not only protecting the innocent, but restoring the person being restrained to godly self-governance. So we treat the psychotic patient with medications and others for, for the purpose of restoring them to a sanity and governance of themselves and freedom. And when we restrain a criminal, the purpose of the restraint from a Christian worldview is not only to protect the innocent, but to protect that person from searing their conscience, hardening their character, warping their heart, destroying their soul, giving them time to reflect in a timeout period called prison so that they can reconsider, repent, and ultimately be um, rehabilitated and restored to society as a self-governing person. Uh, nation states don't do that to each other. The nation state typically is not trying to um, redeem. It's always uh, done from beastly methods and beastly motives. And so I don't see a real place for the Christian to get involved in those things. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. The Bible tells us about that, but we keep our, our minds fixed on Christ. Then the next question is, is written from somebody, and there's four questions by this person, uh, and they're all related to Adventist politics, Adventist rules, Adventist systems, Adventist authority, Adventist church um, um, uh, uh, manual. And so I'm going to refer you, if you're interested in those questions, go to the Adventist church and ask them. We are not part of the Adventist church. We're not, a, um, I, I can't speak for them. I can't interpret them. I don't pass policies for them. I don't sit on any committees for them. And so I would encourage you, if you have an interest in these things, go to your local pastor or church, go to your conference, go to your division or union or um, general conference and inquire about these things and get your answers. Would you please, please explain the contents of the Ark of the Covenant? I always thought it was just the Ten Commandments uh, that were there. Why is Aaron's rod and why the pot of manna? A great question. I will explain it, but I will also tell you if you'd like a resource, get our a magazine, The Wedding of Christ to His Bride, Preparing the Church for Christ's Second Coming, because I explain it in detail with references in that magazine. You can download a PDF copy. If you have a U.S. postal address, you can uh, request it. It requests a common reason. We'll ship you one at no cost or, or more than one if you want to share it with others. But <clears throat> the Old Testament sanctuary service is all theater. 
It's, it's, it is nothing in the entire system that has any actual literal salvation value. It teaches truths, and the truths uh, are what have the salvation value. And so it's all theatrical enactment. And we'll just focus on the last portion, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant um, shows the, the universe reconciled or at one with God again. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there was a lid. The lid was made out of solid gold. That solid gold lid is the hilasterion, and Paul in the New Testament Romans attributes the lid, the hilasterion, to Jesus Christ. He is the, the being through which all things come back into at one or unity. Above the lid are two angels, and they are connected to the lid, symbolizing the angelic host. All things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross, so they're connected into unity through Christ. The Shekinah glory of God rests on the lid, so he, Jesus, the lid, is the connecting link of the Godhead, connecting the Godhead with the rest of creation. And the box under the lid was made out of acacia wood, which is a porous wood with holes, symbolizing sinful human being who is corrupt and damaged by sin. But that box was covered in gold, so all the defects in the wood were filled in with gold, so it was a perfect gold box. That shows our corrupt characters being filled with the perfect gold righteousness of Jesus Christ who restores us to perfect righteousness. And in that box, which represents the converted sinners of earth, there were three, three things that were placed. And the three things that were placed were placed in a particular order. The first thing placed in the box, Exodus 16, was the manna. Jesus said in John, I am the bread of heaven. And so the first thing that, that helps the sinner on earth become restored to unity with God and thus filled with the gold of Christ's righteousness is we must partake the word of God. I am the bread of heaven that's come down. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. The word became flesh. So we partake of the truths that Jesus revealed. That is the manna going into our hearts. When the manna goes into our hearts, we are one back to trust and we open our heart to him. And the next thing that was placed in the box, Exodus 20, is placed in and we open the heart. That's the law. I will write my law on their hearts and minds, Hebrews 8.10. This is the new covenant. So the law of fear and, and, and selfishness, the law of sin and death is removed, and the law of love and trust, the law of God is written in, and we live now in love and trust to God and love for others because we have partaken of the word and one to trust, and we now have the Holy Spirit bringing the blood, the life of Christ, with his law of love that becomes our operating system. We live in love and trust now. And then the third thing, which is Aaron's rod, which was a dead piece of wood, which became alive and budded and brought out fruits, which is the fruits of almonds that budded. And we who are dead and trespass and sin become alive and bring about the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And so it's teaching an object lesson form, the plan of salvation, that we must partake of Christ, be one to trust. We open the heart, the Holy Spirit brings the life of Christ and his living law of love is written on our hearts and minds. And we who are once dead in rebellion, trespass and sin come to life and bring forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And thus we have the gold of Christ filling all the defects and we are reconciled or at one with Christ and will live forever with in God's heavenly kingdom. So that's what that means. Isn't it beautiful? Yes. When a non-Adventist asks if I'm an Adventist, I hesitate and struggle to find a simple answer. Likewise, when a non-Christian asks if I'm a Christian, it depends on what your view of those 
of those are because there's a false representation and a true. How would you answer someone asking you? I do exactly what you're suggesting in your question. I simply say, tell me what you understand an Adventist to be or what you're understanding what a Christian is. And depending on how they describe it, then I say, well, I am, yes, okay, that represents what I believe and who, who I seek to be, like Jesus, like Christ. Or no, no, I'm not one of those. No, that's not who I am. Uh, and so I can either agree or disagree depending on their description. So I think it's always wise if somebody asks you that to get their understanding of what it means before you say yes. This person asked why they are not listed as a member of our Common Reason um, on our Common Reason website so they can identify followers near us. And um, the webmaster posted an answer because you might not be using the right search terms. Um, and, uh, and there's some instructions there for you to read, so I encourage you to do that. So thanks for answering that, Dean. Um, thank you for your godly wisdom to help others like me to understand God's character and discern false teaching. My question today is why the Bible's... Uh, Um, did not record Jesus' mission or interactions with his half-brother and sister. Uh, example, Jesus called reception of them, and, has, and he had to ask John to care for Mary after his death. Our mission is to love our neighbor in action. Is Jesus implying uh, to us uh, that uh, we are to reach out to others, the stranger, because God um, will take care of our family members? No, not at all. Um, so my reading of this is that Jesus is always very respectful and uh, gracious and thoughtful towards the treatment of his mother, particularly when we read it in modern language and and it uh, says, "Woman, uh, why, why at, the, at the wedding of Cana, woman, why are you asking me? My time has not come." That can sound rather abrupt and and rude, but actually in the culture, he was saying something like, "Dear mother." or dear woman, or something like this. It was, it was actually a term of endearment in the way it was said uh, with great respect. It was not in any way cold. When, when they came to him and he was actually preaching, and uh, they said, your mother and brother are here, and he says, uh, everyone who accepts um, you know, my father in heaven is my mother and brother and didn't receive them at that time, that doesn't mean that he didn't spend time with them or seek to help them. Uh, at other times, it meant that he was in the middle of a major sermon and he wasn't going to walk off stage and lose his audience. And the truths that he was speaking to these people, they can wait a few minutes and he'll talk to them later. That's all that's going on there. And, and I don't think that's disrespectful at all. Uh, when his brothers tried to encourage him to go to Passover, they were trying to encourage him to do something from their worldly perspective, not from a godly perspective. And he said, you do what you think you need to do. I'll follow what I need to think to do. Showing them respect and giving them liberty, not telling them how they were wrong or correcting them or so forth and not arguing with them. So I don't actually see that Christ was in any way other than always gracious and helpful and loving toward his parents and his and his brothers. I read this week's blog, and first of all, congratulations. I'm happy everything fell into place for you. You ended the blog by saying that you hope uh, we can reflect on God as we face events about uh, to break upon the world. Can you please elaborate a little uh, what events do you think are coming, and uh, when do you say, say, I would encourage you to read some of my other blogs. I've gone into great detail, uh, multiple blogs, End Time, Preparing for the End Time, uh, King of the North, King of the South, um, The uh, Signs of Christ's Near Return, uh, Why Satan Hates the U.S. Constitution. I've written blog after blog after blog describing the things that are actually happening. What's about to break on the world uh, is exactly what the Bible teaches, that the ungodly forces of this world are going to take ever-increasing control and our civil and religious liberties are going to be eroded. 
And we uh, cannot find our security and safety in human organizations or human systems, but only in trusting God and, and being true to the principles of God's kingdom and how we live and treat others. When people say, everyone has their sin, or it's not possible to keep the commandments, is that true? Should people be saying things like that? Is it not possible to live a sinless life? And would you say sins are the same thing as flaws? Can you have flaws that are not sin? <laughs> so what's the first question we have to ask with questions, questions like this? What is lawlessness? Correct. What lawlessness are you defining these questions and the term sin through? If the lawlessness is a human law, then it's all about behavior and performance. If the law lens is the law of love, then we can become perfect as Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. We can become perfect as Enoch became perfect and was translated into heaven, as Elijah became perfect and was translated into heaven. What is this perfection? And Jesus himself said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The perfection of, of Job was not the perfection of someone who was sinless. It was the perfection of someone who developed a perfect trust in God and nothing could shake him out of it. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego had perfect trust when they would not bow to the idol and would really, and were thrown into the furnace. Daniel had perfect trust when he went into the lion's den. The biblical perfection is maturity of character such that we come to love and trust God more than angling to protect self. That selfishness no longer controls the actions that we are motivated by because we are choosing in governance of self to do what is right and trusting God with how things turn out. That's the perfection. What's right is determined ultimately by, truly by God's design laws, but a person at any particular stage might be choosing to do what their conscience tells them is right, but n is not necessarily objectively the best choice. There's no sin in that. You see this in, in Scripture all the time. Uh, where do we find Rahab? We find her in the Hall of Faith in the New Testament because she exercised faith or trust in God by hiding and lying about where the spies were because she did what she thought was right to protect and side with God and God's people. It's not about the behavior. It's about the motive of the heart. But the legalists will always focus on the behavior she lied. You'll find the same thing in David when after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and after his repentance and true conversion and rebirth with a new heart and right spirit, he did not turn away from Bathsheba but married her. And, and if you have a legalistic view and some man in some part of the country today where polygamy is legal still in that nation state, there's nation states where it is, if that person uh, did something similar, had three or four wives already, murdered somebody and stole his wife, uh, and then was converted at an Adventist church and baptized in the Adventist church in that country, uh, what would the Adventist leadership say he should do with that woman? Should he, if he's repentant, go ahead and marry her and make her his fifth wife? Or should he turn away from her? They would say, turn away from her. If David would have turned away from her, she would have been in that culture a homeless person with no station, no name, no reputation, no income, probably had to turn to prostitution or something like that to, to support herself and survive. 
And so David, in repentance, had a responsibility to act in love and truth and to restore to Bathsheba what he stole from her. And he stole her name. He stole her reputation. He stole her livelihood. He stole her security. He stole her home. And he stole the man who loved and cherished her as God designed a husband to do. And if he was really repentant, he would take her and restore all those things to her. That's why it was not sin for doing that. But you can't get there if you actually function in a system of rules. And so David was perfect at that point while he continued to love and cherish Bathsheba. And we have evidence from that. When he had a child from Bathsheba out of selfish exploitation and sin, that child resulted in death. When he had a child with Bathsheba out of loving um, and lovingly applying God's design law to restore what he took, he had a child of wisdom, Solomon. And the Bible is teaching us very obvious lessons in these things. So I, I, I think that should pe people should be teaching that through God's grace, we can experience the indwelling Holy Spirit that will lead us into a trust relationship such that we stop breaking trust with God. In Romans 14, 23, Paul said, everything that is not from faith or trust is sin. And so we can stop breaking trust with God but we still may make decisions or actions that break various rules, depending on our maturity level at the time. And somebody said, uh, happy Sabbath. So happy Sabbath. <laughs> Good morning. I have an observational question involving the seven levels of development. It seems that most Christians get stuck at level four. 75% of society, Christian or not, never rise above level four, they get stuck there. So that's not just Christian, but that's just um, societal. If I obey the law and keep the rules, I'm safe. In today's environment, I have observed the, that following the written law in our states and federal government does not lead to safety anymore. One could prove their case and cite the law, but the people in authority disregard these laws at an alarming rate. Thoughts and feedback, please. Yes, because the world does not operate on any principles of righteousness. It's all about power and control. And the laws of man, made-up laws, are always for the purpose of serving those in power. <laughs> really. Uh, the laws that we put in in our Constitution were designed to actually help a people, but the founders that put those laws in said that the, the, the system of, of the United States form of government was only uh, useful to a moral and religious people. If the religious people, if the people become immoral and a-religious, then the system of laws in America lend themselves to exploitation abuse. And that's where you end up with totalitarian control. And what, what's happening in America is you destroy God, family, country, the higher altruistic purposes. So we have an amoral and irreligious people, and then you lead them to be godless and exploitive of others so that they will eventually beg for a totalitarian system of order to come in and it regresses down to a level one or two rather than a level four. And that's what's happening, and it's being driven by, by Marxists and communists that, that want a totalitarian system whether, rather than a system of liberty amongst people. But the highest a human government can truly get is a system of law and order, which is a system of level four um, that is governed by a moral and religious people, which is our system to set up for. But we're actually going in reverse because we've lost our moral roots, and, and there are godless um, communists and Marxist people seeking to degrade this society and make it uh, in the image of those totalitarian controls where you have a few elite rulers exploiting the masses for the benefit of the elites. That's what's happening. 
Can you identify who or what the beast and false prophet are in Revelation 16, 19, and 20? I assume these are all same characters, yet they have... So I'm not going to take the time to do that at this time. If you want to know about the beasts of Revelation 13 and 17, we've written a, uh, a blog on that, but I would have to go into some study to search out those things at those times, and, and we don't have time for that to do a afternoon Bible study. Do you have a blog that I can share with someone who has a problem with God killing women and children? I would encourage you to read our blogs on the flood. Go to our website, type in the flood, and read the blog about the flood. And that gives a, a, an overview and a principle of what's going on there in the Old Testament. You can also uh, type in things like Sodom and Gomorrah. You might find a couple other blogs. Probably the one called Sword of God may have something along those lines as well. Regarding your discussion on missionaries today, can you do harm by sharing too much truth? Jesus said to his apostles in Acts, I have much to tell you, but you cannot yet bear it. I think that proves the point right there, that we have to share truth and he's in love and use wisdom on what truths to share and when and with whom. So yes, you can do harm by sharing too much truth to people who are not ready to receive it. So thank you all, and I'll see you next week. Have a good week. Bye-bye.